evening and welcome to At Humber. I'm Tina Nalova Ikome Likambi. Today we look at changes in businesses as the province reopens, mandatory vaccination for students in a post-secondary campus in Canada, and marginalized communities having less exposure to residential greenness. All that and more coming up on today's show. Today, Ontarians get to enjoy long-awaited luxuries like patio dining and in-store shopping as the province begins step one of its roadmap to reopen. However, locals may notice something different as they head out to their nearest stores or restaurants. Several businesses have pasted signs of tombstones on their windows as part of a recent initiative by the Toronto Association of Business Improvement Area. The By Toronto Time initiative signifies the immortality of these businesses throughout the pandemic. Radio Humber reporter Kelly Luke speaks with Executive Director John Cairo about what small businesses can expect as they reopen. What do you think the biggest challenge these businesses will face as, as we open up? Do you think it will be business as usual? No, I, I think the reality is that uh, business as usual is, is not going to be uh, the sense, um, you know, as, uh, as long as people work from home and they don't travel into the inner core into all those buildings, you know, those customers, those were the people that would drop in in the morning and grab a muffin and a coffee, come out at lunch and possibly after hours, they'd meet up with their buds and go to the pub and, and have a few drinks. You know, businesses will find it challenging uh, when they look at their ledger and they see the debt that they took on to keep their business open the loans that are going to have to be repaid by the end of the year, uh, the deferrals that happen. There's a lot of money they owe. And I'm sure for some, it will be very difficult uh, to get up in the morning and go to work to pay off all that stuff with, without, for months and months, making any money themselves. Look, 15, 16 months, uh, we've, we've been close. Uh, some of them even with this opening on Friday, the hair salons and personal care people, they're still closed. You know, the longest closure of businesses in any jurisdiction in the world. Uh, that's how long these folks have been closed. So, you know what, we're grateful uh, that we can open and, and allow people in. But really the challenge is gonna be to convince people to, to come down and, and, and shop, et cetera. I think that there will be a bit of a hangover uh, from this, I think uh, we need to build confidence in the shoppers uh, to feel comfortable going into a store. Um, you know, small businesses are more than able to keep and meet all the protocols, especially at 15%. So, uh, but really putting, putting the message out there to remind people that small businesses need their support now more than ever. The campaign that your association is is moving forward with i saw that there's the idea to put up tombstones in in storefronts you kind of answered it a bit but uh, how will these signs kind of bark a call to action to consumers yeah well that that's exactly it it's uh, you know that blank date you know the the idea of the business name when they opened in a blank date because 
quite frankly, any of these businesses within a day or in a short period could fill in that second day. Uh, they could be closing. That's how difficult things are out there for many, many of them. So really, uh, the tombstone is simply a symbolism in the life of, of a business. And uh, the idea, again, is to remind people that don't, don't be sorry at the end of the day. You know, I'm sure there are many stores that you wish you had gone to uh, that you hadn't. So don't let this store be another one. Go in, visit them, you know, realize that how Main Street goes, so goes the rest of the neighborhood. You want a nice, vibrant Main Street around where you live. It only amplifies your experience uh, on the street. So in each one of these little businesses that is a part of that ecosystem is important. So do your best in, in supporting them and encourage them to make it through this. Is there anything that, um, that you hope that the city or the province, but like mostly decision makers can keep in mind as, as things open up? I think what you'll find is that we want to make sure that the government, all levels of government continue to support small business, that we don't simply cut out the rent support programs, the, you know, uh, the grants, the, uh, the loans, et cetera. It's not a, it's not a flip of the switch that the economy is going to open and everybody's going to be, be great. Like I said, it's going to take significant time for businesses to recover from this, making sure that some of these support programs that are in place will continue and give the businesses an ability to get back on their feet before they cut them out. That was John Carew, Executive Director of the Toronto Association of Business Improvement. For Radio Humber, I'm Kelly Luke. As Ontario reopens due to low COVID-19 numbers and high vaccination rates, Western University becomes the first post-secondary campus in Canada to make the COVID-19 vaccine mandatory. However, it won't be for everyone. The school recently announced all of its students living in residence will need to have the shot. Here in Toronto, Humber College still hasn't said if it will make the same decision. Rajiv Tawani is a residence don who works closely with first-year students as a mentor and liaison to the rest of the campus. At Humber's Rajesh Dave talks with Tawani, who speaks to the mandatory vaccine. Do you feel this would discourage students from wanting to live in residence and shift to maybe off-campus housing? Yeah, it probably could be a factor in, in some students and um, even their parents considering whether or not they want to live in residence or even go to a particular university if, if they're kind of mandating that they're, they're vaccinated. And I think vaccination is obviously a, a personal choice, but has been over many decades of scientific research backed to be safe and healthy and, uh, and something that has allowed for the eradication of many diseases. But if people and students choose to not get vaccinated, but universities mandate them for residents or for attending as a student in general, um, I think that could definitely um, alienate a lot of people from universities and create a lot of barriers and difficulties for people who have different beliefs and values. And I think that uh, universities are generally areas that are quite inclusive and accepting of people of different backgrounds and ideal ideologies. Uh, and so I think it, it forces people to, to get vaccinated if they want to attend university or, or live in residence. And that can be quite an uncomfortable situation. Do you think that 
this mandate should be expanded to the rest of campus. So for example, Western is kind of just enforcing it with their residents. Um, do you think it should be extended to athletic facilities, um, academic buildings, research buildings, or should it just be restricted to res? No, I would think that it would be most important to be implemented in, in residence. I mean, from my experience being as a, a university student, it's, you know, most of your interactions are not maybe as close quarters and uh, in terms of being on campus, but residence is where you have a lot of people aggregating closely together. And so I think that would be the first step, but it would make sense for that to be transmitted or that policy to be enacted kind of university-wide or campus-wide just to make the whole campus uh, safer. And for even students that are getting vaccinated uh, and their families, it would be a sense of security for them to know that the student or the school that they're going to, that they're, um, the rest of the students there uh, are vaccinated and, and that their child is going to somewhere that's going to be safe. It, it is quite likely that they would extend that to um, to the whole campus. But again, there's there's that concept of, of imposing, you know, uh, vaccination onto people and instead of it being a choice. And I think that gets into uh, kind of a tricky gray area in terms of um, like personal liberties and choices and but contrasting that with like public health issues and the importance of keeping everyone safe. I think there's a lot to balance there. Do you feel this would impact day-to-day operations in residence? I think that COVID has definitely changed the residence experience and uh, in terms of how people interact and how things are going virtual. Um, if enough people get vaccinated and public health measures can change. I think that the pre-pandemic res experience can can return. And I think that that was kind of the best part of living in residence is, is having um, programming and activities that brought people together and they could be educational or they could be fun. And I think that's what makes a residence and the university experience is building community and having fun and meeting, meeting really cool people. And so I, I hope that you know, especially with a lot of people getting vaccinated and choosing to get vaccinated, that, you know, eventually we could stop wearing masks and we could hang out in large outdoor settings together and, you know, return to the pre-pandemic activities that everyone's looking forward to. And that would extend to the res experience as well as, you know, doing the things that dons and students have, have done in the past and that bonding and collegiality and, that common experience that most alumni share um, from university. Um, residence is quite close quarters. People share bathrooms, people share um, like dining halls and, and uh, it's a very close quartered, intimate environment. And so uh, if students are choosing to not be vaccinated, then that can have broader implications in terms of, of, of spreading COVID and, and more students getting sick that way. Again, there's, there's that concept of, of imposing, you know, uh, vaccination onto people and instead of it being a choice. And I think that gets into uh, kind of a tricky gray area in terms of um, like personal liberties and choices and but contrasting that with like public health issues and the importance of keeping everyone safe. That was Rajiv Tanwani, a residence don at Western University. Moving away from residential campuses, over the past year, we've learned the importance of getting outside to enjoy even a small amount of nature. But a health report from Statistics Canada reveals marginalized communities, racialized people and immigrants in particular, have less exposure to residential greenness across the country. 
using satellite imagery and data from the 2016 census, researchers measured health benefits associated with greenness. This is determined by how close your home is to trees, parks, and other bits of nature. At Humber reporter Tyler Cheese speaks with Lauren Pino, a senior research analyst at Statistics Canada and the head author of this report. What do you think is the biggest takeaway from this report? Basically, that greenness is unequally distributed uh, within urban areas of Canada, and it is unequally distributed among populations that are sometimes, in some cases, um, of lower socioeconomic status. So, for example, lower income um, persons or potentially specific socioeconomic groups. So, um, it, so, so for example, if you're renting your home, you're more likely to have uh, lower exposure to greenness. And we also looked at ethnocultural uh, groups and found, and we did a disaggregated analysis, which really means pulling apart um, specific groups that are identified on the census rather than just sort of lumping everyone in as a so-called visible minority group. And so what this tells us is that there's specific groups that have lower exposure. And in this study, what really stood out to us was that um, Filipino populations in particular had the lowest exposure to greenness in Canada, in urban Canada. Can you describe for our listeners what areas of the country are included in your analysis of greenness? This is really a question that's relevant to urban Canada. And the way that we defined urban Canada in this case is we used a combination of some of the, this, the Statistics Canada sort of uh, terminology for metropolitan areas. And we also looked at, because sometimes within a metropolitan area, there's quite a few rural spots. So we use other, other sorts of uh, metrics to try to determine if someone is actually living in you know, either suburbia or in a downtown core. And when it comes to the potential health benefits of living closer to greenness and, and green spaces, what are those benefits? So we looked at it, how green is your neighborhood and how does that influence your risk of premature death? And what we were finding was that actually it protects against that death. So it's, it sort of does the inverse of something like air pollution, which was hazardous to your health. Um, we showed that it, it actually reduced your risk of mortality. And we know from different different types of research that this could be um, through a variety of different ways. So for example, one of those is um, an association with psychological health. So I think intuitively we know that, you know, greenness is beautiful and it's like it provides an aesthetic experience to go out and walk in it. But um, there does seem to be a link between greenness and psychological health. Um, and we also know through some of the work with our, you know, collaborators and our and other people that we work with that it has a positive benefit on things like physical activity and outdoor time, which have, you know, downstream effects on health, like on, on reducing obesity and promoting cardiovascular health and other things. The report outlines how marginalized communities have less exposure to greenness, but in particular, it found disparities for ethnic groups, which include racialized Canadians and immigrants. Um, what do you think is causing these disparities? I think a big part of what drives a lot of these sort of disparities is um, where people choose to live. And, you know, for example, we saw lower greenness among recent immigrants to Canada. And, you know, a lot of recent immigrants to Canada moved to some of the larger cities. Um, and a lot of, you know, for example, places where people can rent homes tend to be along major roads or in areas that maybe um, don't favor as much green space. And so it, it really, um, it, it comes down to the types of 
um, homes that are available for people and the types of, you know, housing stock that's available for these people arriving in Canada or moving around within Canada. And it also has to do with other, other aspects that might be driving a person's decision to live where they do. So for example, if someone's moving to an area, they might be more interested in um, works, you know, living close to their place of work or living close to, you know, for example, transit or some other type of important attribute other than greenness. And what do you think the Canadian public can learn from this report and, and maybe even others like it? Well, I think, first of all, it is important for all of us to understand that um, in terms of the environmental justice piece, that there are injustices within Canada as well. I think there's a common misconception among even scientists that a lot of uh, environmental justice work that's maybe done in the United States, um, they, there's a lot of assumption that it, it doesn't exist in Canada to the same extent. And so one of the things that we're doing at StatCan is trying to document some of those things that the, these disparities that do exist in Canada as well um, and the degree to which they do. Um, and I think, you know, it's not my place to comment on policy or anything like that, but I think that a lot of the findings of this are relevant to policymakers. Lauren, thank you so much for your time. That was Lauren Pinot, Senior Research Analyst at Statistics Canada, talking about disparities in residential greenness across the country. For Radio Humber, I'm Tyler Cheese. For many, a trip up north can be dreadful especially in the winter. But for one couple from India, moving north and experiencing nature and the great outdoors is what attracted them to Sault Ste. Marie and the Arendt looking back. The couple moved to the Sault in July 2020 as part of the Rural Immigration Pilot Project. Radio Humber reporter Danielle Dupuis sits down with newcomer Loveline Sharma to discuss her experience moving to Northern Ontario. What attracted you to Sault Ste. Marie in the first place? Uh, when we got the nomination, we did not know that this city exists. We knew it was Toronto, Brampton, Ottawa, Kitchener, a few areas, but uh, everybody suggested that to move to Toronto, Brampton, Toronto, Brampton. We wanted to move to a smaller town, a small peaceful town close to nature. So I started doing my research and somewhere popped up this name and the website of the city, Welcome to Sault Ste. Marie. And there were like top 10 reasons to move here. And then we went through all of them and saw a few of the YouTube videos about other people who moved here and they just loved it. The best part is travel time. It was sometimes one and a half hours one way to my office. It was like three, four hours gone just in, you know, commuting. I so I have heard people cribbing about uh, there's a traffic jam on Great Northern today. Like what traffic jam? It took 15 minutes, 20 minutes. That's just nothing for us, you know. So, but yeah, as as the time is passing by and if sometimes it takes longer for like my husband Hirsch to come home, I'm like, why are you not home now? It's been half an hour. He's like, I'm also doing other chores and sometimes there can be traffic here too. Oh, okay. So it's like, no, now I'm used to like only 10 minutes or 15 minutes kind of a thing. And uh, it was it was a good place to raise family. So my husband and I, we don't have any kids yet, but it was written it as one of the best towns to raise a family. And of course, an affordable real estate, which is not so true right now, but it was earlier. So these are the reasons. And 
Okay, so we've been here for around 10 months now and we are so proud to have chosen the city as our new home. I was going to ask how long you've been in Sault Ste. Marie for, but you've said it's been 10 months so far. Have you experienced Sault Ste. Marie summer, winter, spring now? Or are you just about to experience your first summer here? First summer, yes. Uh, the fall or the autumn was really beautiful but uh, we had just like we came in end of July 2020 so the summer most of the summer went in quarantine and getting our important cards and documents and everything and then just it was fall and winter winter for a long time we were really excited for the winter although everybody warned us you know Susamari winter is so dangerous Susamari winter no 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 and we were kind of disappointed because we we were expecting more snow, you know, more snowy days. And it was a mild winter. It was freezing cold for a few days. A whole new experience of winter for us. Because my husband, Hirsch, he initially thought he would never, ever need gloves. When he started driving and he had to clean his windshield and everything, that's when the gloves came. And thankfully, I had got him an extra pair. It's going to be our first summer. We are very excited. So you're really going to get the opportunity this summer to really experience summer. And and since you've yes. been in Sault Ste. Marie, what's been one of your favorite things about the city? The best part, I think I can say, we wanted to move to a beautiful place. And here, the community, the people are more beautiful than the city, I will say, because they have been so helpful and supportive to us throughout, even before we landed, after we landed, during our quarantine, until now. There are ample number of examples I can give. And we made a YouTube video on the same to thank each and every one of the persons who helped us. So there were people who dropped us um, home-cooked food on the first day of our quarantine they dropped us a fan because it was very hot that time and in the apartment we were staying there was no fan there no ac nothing and there was a a sweet lady she gifted us a hundred dollars gift card which was like so surprised such a big surprise for us and while you've been here have you experienced any wildlife I think we saw a deer. We have, my husband saw a moose. He has seen, I think, uh, a couple of a coyote also, I guess. We are super excited to, you know, even spot any of the animals. Very, very excited. So we're always on the lookout for these animals because I don't know, it's something very, very new to us and we're very excited. Do you have like a bucket list of all the different places you want to go while living in Sault Ste. Marie? Uh, yeah, a couple of places are there in Susan Marie where we would love to go, like Lake Superior Provincial Park, uh, you know, camping maybe in Pancake Bay. Actually, to be honest, we haven't even visited the local places in Sioux because of the lockdown and COVID. <laughs> so I haven't been to the Canadian Bush, Bush Plain Heritage Centre. I haven't been to Sioux Museum. So first of all, I would love to visit the local city when the restrictions lift. Don't worry. I think you're going to get the chance very soon to be able to experience the museum. Laveline, thank you so much for taking the time to speak to me today. Thank you. Good day. That was Laveline Sharma, newcomer to Sioux St. Marie. Although many people enjoy nature, the ocean environment is still heavily polluted by human waste. Fragments of sharp plastics and other debris interfere with marine life and taint beaches when washed ashore by waves. Humber reporter Claudia Krischker speaks with Peter Walls, a senior researcher at the International Oceans Institute, to talk about Ocean's Day and ocean pollution. Why is it important to have a day dedicated to appreciating our oceans? 
Well, this was set up quite a few decades ago, and I think it was because there was a, a global recognition that the oceans are important to humanity from so many perspectives, uh, uh, in that they provide oxygen, they provide transportation, they provide food, they provide security, and so forth. And so there was a decision to have a day like Ocean's Day just to alert people that we are a blue planet as well as a green planet. Um, in fact, yeah, that should almost be our our uh, notation or our ba our banner. We're a blue uh, we're a blue planet. So I think it's it's important from the point of view of, of of people becoming more literate about the oceans, more aware that no matter where they live, say in a country the size of Canada, with two uh, landlocked provinces, that we are impacted by the oceans. No, like some people take advantage of it in the sense that they don't appreciate all of the stuff that the ocean does bring for us, right? Like you think transport, it also provides leisure, but yeah. some people don't realize that. They're just like, oh, it's an ocean, it's an ocean. I am going to do what I want. That's right. Well, most people, most people focus on their daily lives and, and, uh, and their, you know, their jobs and their families and so forth. And especially if you're inland, you don't... Uh, think about the oceans very much and most of our population in Canada is is inland it's only those of us who live on the coast who are really f um, aware of the ocean what else can be found in the oceans and how does it get there most of most of the most of the pollutants most of the chemical contaminants uh, come from land Sh shipping has a has a has a uh, is, is a source it has a has a role to play particularly if there are accidents uh producing oil into the ocean or fertilizers or other chemicals which are shipped in in ships across the the oceans but most of the pollution is coming from the land and and the majority of it is either from municipalities or from specific industries so for instance in in uh, in the maritime provinces or the atlantic provinces if you look at all four of them uh, we, we have pulp mills, which are regulated, but still produce some, some pollutants um, and organic pollutants into, into the water. We have refineries, we have chloralkali plants, um, we have fish, fish uh, uh, many fish processing plants, which produce, uh, uh, even though they're treated, um, they produce nutrients. We have runoff from agricultural land. So it's the, it's the area, you know, closest to the land, which tends to get the brunt of the, of the impact. There's the ocean garbage patches, right? Will they ever go away? Well, they, well they'll go away if we stop putting material into the ocean. Will they go away? Uh, a lot of that material is pretty persistent in those, in those gyres. Those, those are ocean gyres that tend to be collecting mechanisms uh, just based on the ocean, surface ocean currents. And yes, we're discovering, we being the oceanographic community and monitoring groups and so forth, they're finding more and more, more of those, of, of those collect, collecting gyres of, of plastics. A lot of the material is there because it is, it's floatable, it's persistent. It, um, it'll only go away um, one as, as the material degrades and is broken up. And then, and then that's bad because it either sinks or or is, is taken up by organisms causing all sorts of effects. Um, or we, we, we put less plastic and less persistent material in, into the ocean. That's the only way we're gonna solve that problem. There's a lot of effort right now for, 
uh, towards trying to clean up those gyres to try and collect the material. But, but you're talking about tens of thousands of square kilometers of ocean surface in some cases, such as in the, in the Pacific. Um, so I haven't heard of any successful efforts yet, but people are putting their minds to sort of skimming the, the sea surface and collecting that material, but that would be a huge logistical operation. That was Peter Wells, senior researcher at the International Oceans Institute. Pets have been of great comfort and support throughout the pandemic. However, many pet owners struggle financially and worry they might have to surrender their pets to shelters. COVID-19 Animal Response Program was created to prevent such scenarios and help people keep their beloved pets. Radio Humber reporter Irina Hamenko speaks with Ontario coordinator Larissa Struck about the aim of the program. What my program's work focuses on uh, is to provide low-income individuals um, who've been disproportionately impacted uh, by the pandemic uh, with urgently needed food and supplies, uh, veterinary care, and uh, in some cases where it's necessary, temporary placement for their companion animals. And in what provinces does this program operate? Technically, we're across, we're a national program. Um, this particular program around COVID-19 relief is, is um, in, in Montreal, uh, in Toronto, and extending into, you know, areas of Quebec and Ontario, and also focused on First Nations communities. Mm -hmm. So especially in Quebec, there's a lot of relief that's being provided to, um, you know, the northern communities, the First Nations communities who have had a particularly difficult time accessing help and resources. Mm -hmm. And people who need help, do they need to somehow apply for this program? The Actually, this was one of the 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 important things that we highlighted um, about the program is we wanted to be low barrier. Um, so we, we don't, you know, people don't need to apply, um, or anything like that. Uh, they do need to contact us. And is there a limit in, uh, the amount of food, for example, you can provide to one person? No, I mean, what we try to do, because we rely on donations ourselves, um, we do try to limit it, you know, to a sort of a monthly, um, donation at a time. And that way, you know, um, the individual, you know, has a month's worth of food and if they need kitty litter or anything like that. Uh, and if that same person contacts us a month later and says, look, I still need help, then we'll go back and help that person. And would you say that the numbers of demand uh, from people uh, for your help, uh, did it somehow correlate with lockdowns? Maybe it was higher when there were stricter lockdowns or something like that? Definitely, definitely. And I think, yes, we definitely saw that. We saw, especially before the vaccinations started happening, um, when people were still 
obviously very concerned. I mean, the stay-at-home orders made things uh, much more difficult for people to move around, um, to to get out of their homes. Um, and certainly as the numbers were increasing, which we saw, you know, t- um, last fall and early this year with the numbers being so high, people were um, more hesitant to, to leave their homes. There were more people being hospitalized. Also, the fact that the that the pandemic has um, lasted this long has has really impacted people too. I think you know a lot of people who who are running small businesses um, have made it, have have had a very difficult time. People that you know had jobs who've lost them since people who are in pensions. You know, we we are finding that as the pandemic goes longer and longer, the need for help has actually been increasing too. And for how much longer is it is it supposed to run this program? It's a great question. Our hope is that this program can continue um, beyond COVID, um, because we also see that you know across the city of Toronto, um, there's a really big lesson I think that we've learned um, is that there ha- are there are actually so many communities and neighborhoods that are underserved um, in our city. So many um, areas of our city that, um, and people and residents living in those communities that, that need help and support. And how can people help you maintain this program? Is it by donating money or food? Yes, I mean, honestly, both. The biggest thing for us is you know, um, fund fundraising is a huge part of what we do um, in order to keep. And we have many, many programs in, in at HSI, but the companion animal program is the one we're talking about right now. And, you know, that's the one that, you know, we're always looking for funding so that we can keep our programs both in Montreal and Toronto going. There may be stigma that some people hold on to that people who are in less than desirable situations don't deserve pets and that's not true i've spoken to so many people who will do anything for their animal they'll feed their animal before they feed themselves and that's it for ad humber today's contributors were kelly luke rajesh dave tyler cheese danielle dupuis Claudia Krishka and Irina Hamenko. Our technical producer is Noah Skanga. I'm Tina Nalova Ikome Likambi. Ad Humber is produced by students in the journalism and radio broadcasting programs on 96.9 Radio Humber.